What is this? I'm coming up on my two years. Yeah, you are. In a couple weeks. Been having fun. What, are, what kind of gifts is everyone going to give me? Gifts? I got plenty mm-hmm. of gifts. <laughs> Thank you. Got a gift of Jamie looking <laughs> handsome. Say no more. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> All aboard the loot train. It used to be the hype train. Is that the official... Uh, <laughs> I can't even make a joke about the loot train because... <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> the name of it. The name. I, I did see name. someone tweeted a an, an alternative name for it. I've forgotten what it was now. Rose, Rose, Rose. <laughs> what was it? Cameo appearance from yeah, Michelle. Rose, Road, Roast. Rose, Road, Roast. Oh, I like that. Thank you for like joining that. us for the Field of Fire. Nope. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for the Spoils of War Part 2. This is Game of Owns. And we have with us tonight... A very special guest, Sean of House Beard of History of Westeros, here to join us, give us all of his hot takes. Wait a minute, give you hot takes? (laughs) I thought I was here to get your hot takes. No, (laughs) we're getting your hot takes. Sean, before we go any further, can we have a haiku on the spot? Hashtag game. On the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should have been ready. Maybe I should have seen this coming. We did say some prep was needed for tonight. This was a big episode. This was a big episode. And to buy Sean a little bit more time, or he can go back to his own Twitter feed and read something that he already (laughs) previously wrote. This season, Sean has been composing some amazing Game of Thrones haikus on his Twitter feed. And all of them have made me laugh. So shout out to... uh, to that analysis done shout out in to Twitter. Yeah, shout out to all of your analysis done in strict haiku form. <laughs> this entire episode, all in yep. haiku. <laughs> yeah. Sean carries the banner of the unsullied burden on his back in his course through history of Westeros. We've seen the spoils of war. How do you feel? Tell you what, I got a haiku. Perfect. <laughs> I knew it. Jamie, Jamie on the road thought he was bringing home the loot. <laughs> Instead, a dragon. Wow. Oh I thought you were going to say gold. <laughs> I guess the loot made sense. So though. good. The loot road. I've rewatched the episode three times now. And every time it gets to that scene, I think I fully understand the, I don't think irony is the correct word, but after the credits roll and you see the, the featurette pop up for that amazing behind the scenes special that shows what went into making this, this singular battle singular dramatic tension payoff of a scene happen i was looking at the space it was filmed in and i remember watching for the first two times thinking that it felt so much like such a congruent set it felt like a weird place to have such a congruent set a random road with a random body of water that some folks on twitter think gets shallow and deep in strange places (laughs) i realized after watching it some more that the reason it felt so congruent and so, I guess, shiny and put together is because it was. <laughs> it wasn't shot narrowly. It wasn't bodily. It wasn't. It didn't. It didn't feel. I guess what I'm trying to say is, every single frame was just so tight and well done and looked like a finished photograph almost. That it just felt so polished and serene and such chaos. It was very well put together. Jeez. It felt like. Second to last episode, end of season, major battle. Yeah. Halfway through the season instead of at the very end. How was the conversation on your podcast following this episode? We were all very hyped about it. We were all very excited. It was, uh, I tell you, sort of a specific thought I had about this episode is that I think they've well balanced the level of epicness, if you will. The last episode had three huge 
hugely significant things happen, right? We see Casterly Rock for multiple hugely significant things happen because we see Casterly Rock for the first time and it gets taken. We Mm -hmm. see Highgarden for the first time and it gets taken. And those are like big events that could have been climactic moments of their own for a whole episode. But we also see John and Danny come together for the first time. And that's one of the most epic things that's happened in the whole series. At the end of the whole series, we might look back on that moment as being one of the biggest things that all ha- that ever happened. And that was all in one episode. It was hard to have all those big things, not to mention, you know, Elena dies and right. many other things happen. And it, at the end of that, it's hard to absorb how epic that whole episode was. I feel like this episode was paced out a little better. The We have these epic moments reuniting the Starks and it's um, relatively slow paced. They're, they're dramatic moments, right? And then that builds up to this very action-y moment. It was the action that we got in this episode was more extended and detailed than the action we got in the prior ones. And the epic reuniting here was spread out among more different characters. And I don't know, I think it, I think it made this episode feel bigger. I, I think I was more excited about this episode than the last one not that I wasn't excited about last one, but because I feel like they spent more time on each different epic thing that was happening and there weren't as many crammed into this episode. And I think generally, I feel like the fandom, everyone out there is really excited about this episode and it makes sense. Especially on a couple of rewatches, how short this episode is becomes much more apparent. It's so com- neatly compacted in so much happens as we're talking about in such a short amount of time every single time we get to the end of the episode as i rewatch i just go is that that's it like that's the end of the episode because <laughs> we not a lot happens but also everything happens but i i like what you're saying Sean about the fact that the pace is a little bit slower and so we're spending lots of time on just a couple things this big Loot train, field of fire, two point What was the word? What was the phrase that you called it? That's been floating around. That Rose I road roast. Roads road roast. <laughs> Say yeah. that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> between that and between some of the reunions that we get at Winterfell, and between John and Danny's cave scene, there's a lot of time to to play yeah, in those had, three. You had more time to absorb and assess what was going on in the earlier portions of the episode. Yeah, I was going to say, I hope you're not saying that about the end. (laughs) No, no, right, exactly. (laughs) The chaos. And they gave us a lot to think about, too. A lot of the scenes sort of ended with a moment of, I don't know how to say this, but incompletion. When Sansa Mm -hmm. peels off there, concerned, you know, I'm not quite sure what were to, to describe Sansa's emotion there, but concerned, upset, frustrated, whatever. Um, and we're kind of left wondering what that was, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of excited to see this interaction between Rianne and Arya and a little worried about how Sansa's taking it in. And we have time to kind of ponder this. But then once the action starts, you hardly have a chance to take in what's going on before the next thing happens. And it's very intense. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you're saying, um, I realized that it's new for me to be on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of fun with it. And it's added a lot to my experience with Game of Thrones and the community and everything. And I've been trying to live tweet the episodes. But I realized that once that battle scene had started, I just wasn't paying attention to Twitter anymore. <laughs> it's I was hard. Just, yeah, so involved in a show. So then I go to do a rewatch like I always do when I'm taking notes, right? And I realized when the episode's over, it's like, oh, crap. I didn't take any notes on that whole battle <laughs> scene. I just stopped taking notes when it got to that. So It's hard to look away from John and Danny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is so cute. I've had some moments of just 
hard reflection watching this episode over and over again. And the more I watch it, the more I feel like this is this is hard home part two, but for the fireside. Mm, yeah. We had the early conversations. I remember the hard home episode where Danny and Tyrion are having this big conversation. It was a huge moment to see them come together. And we're getting even bigger reunions in this episode with not only Arya and Sansa, but Arya and Bran and Arya, Sansa and Bran. And then we get to see them walk through the courtyard of Winterfell together. And then we get to see John and Danny grow, find out things from the past, I guess, learn about the, the threat that's moving forward. We're going to talk more about that. They also had their moment on the beach where I guess it was like a standoff of sides. And again, the specter of the looming threat and whatever they were personally dealing with and letting go of their own problems. And I guess coming together and facing a bigger obstacle. And that's what John was doing with the wildlings north of the wall and hard home. And then unsuspectingly, I guess for some people, ice came once and then fire came for these people over the top of the hill. And there was that curtain of fire that the Dothraki walked through. And I was just thinking, well, that's the army of fire making their entrance and the end game of the TV show. We've already seen the army of ice, but here comes Danny. She's in Westeros now. She has brought fire. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people on horseback. <laughs> and Tyrion Lannister is one of her war generals. No big deal. On the yeah. hill looking over. No I think big that's deal. a good analogy though. And I think that in a season where we get we're getting so many great callbacks to a lot of these big defining moments for characters, I think that that's a fair analogy to make. And it it reminds me a little bit of something that kind of came out quite a bit. Um, as people are discussing the episode, but John and Danny's conversation very much mirrors the conversation that John had with Mance Rayder as mm-hmm. they're talking about that threat north of the wall. And and so I do think that a lot of what he's going through in his conversations with Danny and with Danny's power that she has and, and this Field of Fire 2.0 can mirror that same struggle that we watched north of the wall. And so... I think that that's a fair comparison and to have John kind of on the other side. What did y'all think about John and Davos's reaction to Danny when they were speaking on the beach and she had the, her moment with Tyrion where she said something I don't think that she really believed, which was, oh, you're not trying as hard as you could because your family's involved or something. And she looks over to the dragons flying and she says, well, I have three large dragons. Let's take care of this now. And I mean, she was being fierce. And uh, Davos was looking hard and, I guess, assessing the situation. And then John was sort of doing the same thing. And then that's when she asked him for advice. Did you pick up on any foreshadowing there of, this? let's say, the last season, they're fighting the White Walkers, what their dynamic will be with the decisions of how they choose to do things together? One thing I had supposed is that Danny was going to pick up military advisors here. If you think about something... She started off with a lot of pieces to her force, right? She has Dothraki, Unsullied, uh, Greyjoy fleet, dragons, the Tyrell forces, and the Dornish forces, right? And they're they're peeling away. She lost the Dornish. She lost the Tyrells. The the effectively she's for the moment she's lost the Unsullied, but she went from having it, so her military actual forces have been depleted significantly. She's lost more than half of them, but her advisors might have doubled here, right? If she went from having like, you know, a translator and a spy, those were her advisors. We'll give Tyrion some credit, but now she's picking up Davos and John. She might be able to better wield the forces that she has. And something that I do think happened here is Danny asked for advice 
you know, she wants to go burn King's mm-hmm. Landing. And John's like, you know, if I may speak freely, you can't do that. You're just more of the same. You know, people are looking to you and John, it makes sense for John to say this because he's done the same thing. He has done what might be thought is impossible, right? He's come back from the dead and and he brought wildlings on board. And, you know, he's done all these things that are like big and new. And so people are rallying behind him and he's telling Danny, like, look, you've brought dragons. You brought a Dothraki fleet across the ocean. You're doing new impossible things. And so people will look to you to do more new impossible things. But if you just burn down King's Landing, well, you're not new. You're not impressive anymore. You're more of the same from the past, more of what we're trying to avoid. And I think that's why we see the battle that we do see. I think she took his advice. I think they drew up a new plan to go target an army, not civilians, to target a military force, not a civilian force. So cool. And I think it's a key because that's Danny knows that she can. John, John said it too. Look, you could just storm in and take things. Sure, no problem. But if you burn everyone alive and do it with these foreign invaders, you won't be accepted as a ruler after the fact. And so this is sort of a compromise for her to be able to use the dragons, but not necessarily have everyone mad at her for doing it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Yeah. I think that she very obviously is itching to get in and part of the action. She even says so there on the beach. And so this is a, a good compromise for her to be able to actually feel like she's accomplishing something while a lot of her other allies and resources and armies are getting defeated left and right. Um, and I, I like that John gave her some real talk and and was able to give her some genuinely really good advice. I like that she asked for it also, right? Like there have been Definitely. many times it was in the an past. Equalizer. Yeah, for, for better or worse. It's like it's understandable that you don't, as a leader, want to be contradicted in front of people. But sometimes... You can't have people afraid to tell the truth, right? And, you know, we've seen maybe that struggle, that back and forth with John and Sansa. We used to see that with Danny and her advisors when she would make some decree and draw whoever be like, but we can't. And she's like, look, don't you, even if you're right, you can't say that in front of everyone else, you know? Well, this time she asked for it in front of everyone. She's like, what do you think, John? He's like, well, I don't. She's like, look, tell me I'm losing this war. I don't don't worry about my ego. Tell me. Mm-hmm. I appreciate. I think that's a bit of growth we've seen for Danny. Do you think that it had more to do with her personal growth or with the growth of their trust between each other as seen in the the, the sequence just before in the caves? Not just with uh, each other, Danny and John, but with Danny and the rest of her council. Mm-hmm. She's not as worried about being embarrassed in front of them. She's not as worried about being wrong. She's more worried about figuring out what's right. Mm-hmm. So she's got the right team right now is basically what you're saying. That's a big part of it, at least. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. Another uh, little thought, by the way, talking about how Danny has brought fire and the symbolism here, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it was also interesting that in the cave, John is sort of showing her the light, you know, bringing his torch through the story, leading her to the existence of the White Walkers. I think that was sort of symbolic to them. The, the method of how that came, how that played out in the cave, John holding fire, you know, passing the torch to her, showing her the light, etc. Kind of giving her the opportunity to take with fire. Is that what you're saying? Well, John is fire and ice, right? right? He's Targaryen and Stark. And so right. I think that this, we've seen him in the north dealing with ice a lot, but now we're seeing him in the south dealing with fire. He's dealing mm-hmm. with Danny. He's holding this torch. He's showing her the light. There's a lot of ways this could be looked at symbolically. It feels like John's out of his element compared to Danny because she arrived there before he did, and it's her ancestral home. But he's also a Targaryen, and he's also lived in Westeros his whole life. And he also has a lot of experience. It's like a catch-22. Again, if you go back to thinking about Mance, on one hand, like, 
they make good arguments. Danny is making good arguments. Danny and John are both make good arguments back and forth. But in the end, there's this sort of catch-22. John is saying, look, you know, these people trust me. And part of trusting me is that I'm not going to bend the knee to anyone else. It's the reason I'm in this position, right? And she's like, well, if you're such a great leader, they'll, they will trust you even if you bend the knee. And he's saying, no, they won't. You don't get it. That's the mm -hmm. reason they trust me is because they know I won't bend the knee. It's this back and forth that I don't know how it will become over, uh, overcome. I don't know how it will be overcome eventually. Like maybe they will just be able to operate independently. Maybe Danny will just be okay with him still being king of the North. Maybe one of them will die. If one of them is dead, it won't matter as much. Maybe she'll finally see the White Walkers and recognize that's a bigger threat. Or maybe the North will see the dragons. Maybe if John shows up with Danny and these dragons, then everyone will be like, okay, yeah, man, you better bend the knee. You know, <laughs> I can see right. a lot of different ways that this plays out, but clearly they're setting up a lot of different ways for this to play out. I saw one person point out, by the way, that if they get married, it's kind of like a technicality. Does John have to bend the knee if they get married? You know? Well, I think that definitely we need some sort of catalyst because where we are right now with them, they're both so stubborn that there's no way either one will move. I think that if we stayed in this little situation that we've got going on now, their respect for each other will grow. And their own continue. survivor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Leon just got brought back from jury council. <laughs> like, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I haven't watched Survivor since, you know, 2005. I can't make a lot of relevant jokes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think that they'll continue to grow in respect for each other and continue to give each other great advice and continue to be able to come from these mutual places of understanding. But in order for as you're saying, Sean, any real movement to happen or for someone to bend the knee or for someone to let John leave or, you know, all these kinds of things that there has to be some sort of, of catalyst to get that moving and kind of what that is, I think is a good question. And especially when we think about all the people who are surrounding her and the different types of advice that she is getting and what's going on with her armies and whether or not Tyrion is giving her great advice, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the thing is that gets the two of them to come together or to come to some sort of mutual understanding if they're heading in that direction, which I think that we all can assume they are. And I think that as far as their shortcomings, as either described by other people or at least tiptoed around and discussed in conversations, like when John and Davos were sort of cornering Masende there down on the uh, staircase. It started out kind of friendly, and then it was just they were kind of pressing her about information about Daenerys. You know, in the cave, John was telling her things that she should recognize about herself and her approach to, I guess, saving the realm and protecting the people that follow her and the people that follow John. But also, she was giving John advice about how to understand that as a leader, if he does choose to do something, those people chose to follow him truly. And I think that's one of the things he's always, with his modesty, been able to not really grasp. And it's been one of the reasons that he's, I guess, progressed slowly. And it's been to, I guess, the negative impact for some of the people around him. But it's just part of what makes John, John. You know, but on the other hand, you've got Masande imploring to Davos and to John, we chose her. We're all very aware mm -hmm. of that. And as far as our council is concerned, 
we all stand together on the beach and we all greet you at the same time. And when you come into our throne room, we have really cool stuff planned to say. You might not be as organized in Winterfell. You might be newly crowned king of the north. But this is our dynamic. And I feel like because of that, they kind of complete each other in a way. And I think that if they're able to sort of fill those cracks in with each other in the drama moving forward, they'll probably be able to fight the White Walkers pretty well. But I don't know if they're going to let us off that easy. Yeah. <laughs> let me give you a couple thoughts here. One, I don't think John is necessarily that stubborn. You don't think? I don't think it's really his ego or his pride. I don't think he cares about bending the knee. He barely even wants to be king of the North. Yeah, that's, that's what true. I mean. Just, that's what, yeah. Right? He just knows it's his responsibility mm-hmm. to his people, right? Imagine if Danny was being asked by someone to take slaves. Would her people still follow her? The reason they follow her is because that's something they know she wouldn't do, right? The reason that people follow John is because they know that he wouldn't bend the knee to a foreigner, right? On and on and on. So they're asking him to do something. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's it's not so much John being stubborn. Would we call Danny stubborn if someone came to her and said, hey, we want you to take slaves? And she's like, well, if I do that, my people won't follow you. Yeah, they will. They chose to follow you. No, they won't. They chose to follow her because they, they know she's against slavery. You see what I'm saying? And it's like, she's... In the same way that Tyrion pointed out, John was asking Danny to do something unreasonable. He's like, you can't just show up and say, hey, drop everything and go attack this, you know, fictional, you know, <laughs> zombie master in the north. Here's the proof. Who? Why? Because you want me to? Who are you? You know, you it's, it? it's, it's, it's not reasonable for her to ask. It's not reasonable for Danny to ask John to bend the knee. He just can't do it. Right. Even it's not his personal pride or ego or stubbornness. It's his responsibility to his people. That's my interpretation at this moment. And I think these things could easily change when new information comes to light, when they simply get to know and trust each other better, when they get to see each other's, uh, I don't want to say this, sides of the arguments, when John sees the true power of the dragons, when Danny sees the true threat of the zombies. These are things that might change their dynamic. But at the moment... I don't really think that John's being stubborn by not bending the knee. I don't necessarily think Danny's being stubborn by requiring of him, but I think it is easier and smarter for her to be the one to bend here. And to be fair, she has. She took Tyrion's advice. She said, okay, go ahead, get the dragon glass. You know, I'm not going to hold you hold you as prisoner because you're actively revolting against me. She kind of hinted at that for a moment, but then she said, okay, fine, go ahead, get the dragon glass. I'm not going to be angry with you. Now she might've partly done that after news of her loss and realizes that she needs him as an ally more. There's like a political reason behind that, but even still, at least she recognizing, at least her recognizing this political reason, she was able to overcome her stubbornness or her pride or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I think she is also grown Mm -hmm. there. Do you think that, I know that she just had a a bit of a victory at the end of this episode, but do you think that if she continues to not be able to find success in the way that she had hoped, that she's then going to be more willing to, well, let's not focus on King's Landing and and let's focus on what you've got going on in the North, John, and then we can circle back and take the Seven Kingdoms? I don't know. Possibly. And that would also make sense from a... Uh, I don't know, meta, a literary standpoint, it would be a way to keep characters like Cersei engaged throughout this, right? If by the end of this season, Danny takes King's Landing and executes Cersei, and then everyone unites to go fight the White Walkers in the North. One big happy family. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they can get, you know, eight or 10 hours of material out of that, right? But if they decide to turn and handle the threat in the North first, and then after that, come back to handle Cersei, then that's more characters 
interacting, more plot lines continuing on. So I hadn't thought of it till you just now said that, but that does kind of make sense. Maybe Danny will face enough obstacles trying to take West Westeros as a whole, and the threat of the North may become more and more clear so that gears shift. It happened with Stannis and Melisandre. Remember, Stannis was all about go take King's Landing. You know, I'm the true king. That's the main mission. But when Melisandre saw that message about the White Walker, she's like, nah, 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 forget that. We got to go to the North first. And Stannis mm-hmm. is like, okay, fine, let's go to the North. You know, <laughs> if if the gears could be changed for Melisandre and Stannis, maybe they could be changed for Danny also. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think that they'll change before things are cleaned up with Cersei and what she's doing with Kyber and the Golden Company? That might be uh. part of the reason why they have to change and go North. If the dragons are too much danger, like Danny had a victory there, but the dragon got injured. That might've been a wake up call. What right? do they leave Westeros to then with uh, those cell swords and all of Cersei's plots? Is she going to be chasing them, I guess, North? She may have all kinds of dilemmas on her hands. It might depend on what goes down with Jamie exactly, mm. right? It might depend on if the Tarleys are able to hold on to Highgarden. You know, if they're even alive after this, I, I, I haven't thought about this too much because it's like a thought that Hannah just planted in my mind. But I could I could see them spinning out a lot of new different plots. If Euron and Cersei get married, what might come of that? <laughs> Man. Give us another wedding episode. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think that would be a dark wedding. Yeah, I was going to say, what, <laughs> what's the, the wedding name for Cersei's that Cersei's definitely one? <laughs> not wearing white. If that does happen, man, please let them play. Please let them all be dressed in black. Oh, and man. And the closing music for the episode be Billy Idol's White Wedding. Mm. <laughs> It'll be just as enjoyable as nearly had this next death day party in chamber. <laughs> Won't be quite mm-hmm. as drab. Just as jolly. The mountain would fit in. That's for sure. <laughs> um, should we ask some of these questions? Yeah. We've kind of danced around a couple of these and we can get that into them a little bit more detail, but... As always, we posted a couple questions on Watchers on the Wall and on our Facebook page, and I think we should get into them. So the first one is, it's about the Children of the Forest. It says, the Children of the Forest created the White Walkers. The White Walkers assemble patterns the children have illustrated for thousands of years. What does this mean? What do the symbols mean? And why were they important to the children and the first men? What do you think, Sean? I happen to know the exact answers to all these questions, but I just can't tell you. I can't tell you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> How's the winds of winter going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is particularly hard to speculate on because it's the thing that we have the the least knowledge about. We have the least yeah. amount to reference. We don't have like good dates to place any of this stuff. Like it's even possible. This is a thing that I thought that that these paintings in this cave, they might only be you know five or six hundred years old. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's possible. There might be paintings about something that's thousands of years old. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not necessarily these paintings weren't necessarily made at the moment that these events happen. They may be legends that have been told for centuries. Definitely. And there may be a new perspective by people after centuries telling the story looking back. So, you know, what, what really happened and what's being represented in these paintings and the way that the characters interpret these paintings and the way that we interpret the characters' interpretation of these paintings are all really difficult to pin down. You got to think on some level, the writers of the show, you know, there weren't really White Walkers and Children of the Forest making these paintings. The writers of the show decided to put this in there and they did that for a reason. And so that's something we might be able to speculate about. Right. That's what I'm trying to understand. Is this a mystery for mystery's sake or is this important to the mechanics of how things work? For example, in Hard Home, when I learned about the White Walkers, I think about all the pages that I've read and how much I love A Song of Ice and Fire, you know? And so if this is any hint at all toward 
bigger picture stuff as far as the way magic works in the world. I'm very interested in that now being between books five and six and also being here, you know, in the middle of season seven. This is pretty cool stuff to see. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's a huge mystery. We've we've seen some of these spirals crop up a couple times, you know, very early. The first episode. Episode one. Yeah. Very <laughs> beginning. Much, much earlier than that. And so we Scene know. One. Yeah, yeah. We know that there's significance to them, but we don't have any answers whatsoever to what they mean. I mean, we can speculate that it could be a religious thing. We've got, you know, a couple comments on Watchers talking about how these are patterns in the sky that represent the, the coming of, of a long night and then like the change in the season. But we really don't know what the weight or significance of that could be. If the children use these symbols for power, for example, the human was being changed with the obsidian, he was standing you know, in the middle of this shape that eventually in the land of always winters cloaked in snow. And we've seen White Walkers lay bodies in those patterns. I'm more interested, I guess that's not really fair. I was going to say I'm more interested in why the White Walkers are doing that because that's kind of fascinating to me why they would be doing something that they're, I guess, their own personal God creator, sort of someone that they maybe hate. It seems like they hate them. Why they would be perpetuating. Emulating them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that both the children of the forest and the White Walkers separately find meaning in this symbol, right? Especially if it's something, some celestial event, some alignment of the stars that has some meaning that one isn't necessarily copying the others. I think there might be something out there that D&D said about the White Walkers having learned it from the children, but that still doesn't mean it couldn't be some outside thing that they all look to. I think so. And we got this comment um, that I want to read from Franian who says, one is tempted to interpret the spiral symbol the same way that spirals have been used in nature-centric pagan, pagan cultures in the real world for millennia as cosmic symbols of the ever-renewing life cycle, the unity of time, the simultaneity and interdependence of creative and destructive energy. Trace a spiral to its center and you find yourself tracing it back outwards again. It's a pattern that occurs throughout the natural world, from flowers to seashells to galaxies. So Energy, man. Yeah. So it's this <laughs> thing that could, you know, as you're saying, Sean, could be universally seen and interpreted in different ways. Now, that said, we don't see the seven or R'hllor using this spiral symbol. So it seems like it's connected to something ancient, right? Mm -hmm. Deeper. Yeah. Maybe at the, at the bottom of everything. Maybe underlying uniting principles with all these gods that share the earth. Maybe they're lesser gods of Westeros. Maybe the children of the forest knew how to, I guess, knew how to pay homage. Maybe they're just astral bodies. You know, what if we looked closer and we could see the comet from season two painted on the wall somewhere? Maybe it passed by a long time yeah. ago and it's just coming back again. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't only the spiral. I feel like the spiral gets a lot of mentions because it was the most. Prominent. We've seen it multiple times before now, and we saw several spirals on the walls, but there were many other symbols there, too. Yeah, and we've seen the White Walkers lay bodies in other patterns as well, uh, particularly yeah, the one another with the... one we've seen a couple of times is a circle with a line through it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, these maybe are just, you know, mystical things put in there to be mysterious. There, there, there may not be like an answer to exactly what these are, or if there is one, we may just never know it. It may be a mystery that doesn't get revealed. 
it could just be as simple as this moment in a cave is just important because Danny needs to know that the White Walkers are real, right? That's like his literary device. That's what's happening. Now, there may also be other symbols and clues to other stuff going on, but what I think is definitive is that that scene and that artwork is to clue Danny in that John isn't just full of it, that there's there's some evidence to back yeah, him up here. I think so. And maybe to impress upon her some of the lore of Westeros and how deep it goes. Whenever she does eventually face them, she'll at least have had some screen time in the series as far as storytelling and I guess covering your asses are concerned that she's, you know, been exposed to this kind of mysterious stuff that we've only really seen ever so far north of the wall in a tree. That was also a neat a neat little aspect of that interaction was Danny seemed to be Into genuinely it. in awe. Mm-hmm. She was like, Wow, we're standing in the same place. Yeah. She uh she it was meaningful to her. I thought that was neat. It's like one of those wonderful George R. R. Martin chapters where we're in Volantis and we get the side mention of the, you know, a tower over there. And there's like, well, hold on. That legend you just told me about the people who lived in that tower is probably worth a good spinoff series. Yeah. Like yeah, it makes yeah. it real. Mm-hmm. Even if these spirals and symbols <laughs> and cave paintings. Drink. <laughs> Drink. But even even if all of these symbols are just to be a catalyst for Danny, you know, I don't know if we are looking at this first scene in episode one and the whole purpose for that was so that Danny would understand the reality of, of what this is to me that doesn't seem to, to flow, but so a lot of comments more than were enough to read individually. And I think we're kind of talking about this as well is that these are just to keep us as the audience reminded that all of this is connected and that there is a larger thing that we don't understand out there that that connects all of this together so don't forget another place that they could uh tie this in sam sam i can just imagine an episode a scene where sam unfolds one of these scrolls (laughs) and you see these spirals on a page and all these symbols i can see that being a way part of his discovering how to beat them or something you know by the way uh i don't know how deep down this line of thought we want to go but take it down the rabbit hole i i am constantly overwhelmed it's it's like such an overwhelming thought in my mind that i it, i i like keep it from coming to the surface <laughs> i want to know what is the night king's motivation what are the white what what do they want mm-hmm. and and that leads me to start thinking about things like that's why i want to talk about this by the way because <laughs> i'm yeah, like why are just, why are they just mindless zombies just randomly moving south i don't think so or have they decided to move south for some reason mm, yeah and whatever that reason is is it a scheduled thing on the calendar from a thousand years ago or is <laughs> it an event <laughs> yeah is it an event that occurred are they somehow aware that dragons have come about or that there's not a stark in winterfell i guess there is one again now maybe that has changed how they feel about things i wonder can the night king speak english or whatever the language of westeros is can, can, is, is it possible we'll ever get a scene of him negotiating with John? We know that the language Scroth was developed for the series, so they thought about it, but I think that was only them communicating with each other. I wonder if it's if it's possible that what they want is something that can be negotiated. What if they want, like imagine the conflict. If they say no dragons on this continent, that's the reason we're upset. That's the reason we're coming and we won't stop till the dragons are gone. 
would Danny be like, okay, I guess I'll go. Or would she be like, we'll burn you all, you stupid zombies. And it, will John mediate? Will John try to say like, no, you should really go. This is too, you know, like, what's I'd the worst thing? I'd rather have dragons than zombies. <laughs> so far, like, I'm not trying to say that the Night King is good, right? But what's the worst, most evil thing we've seen him or the zombies do? If on some level you consider that this is their land north of the wall and that men are intruders. I don't think that's crazy to consider because Danny thinks that everyone in Westeros is intruders. Her land, they're intruders. Many times, many characters that we think of as good guys have basically gone to war and killed people because they were on their land threatening their claim to it. What if that's all the Night King is doing? You know, we've never seen him say, I want to exterminate all humans or... I just want to blindly murder or I am the incarnation of evil and everyone must follow me. All we've really seen him do is march across his own land, attacking people that are on it. I guess maybe we saw him kill babies. We also saw we've seen some other people kill babies, too, though. Right. So (laughs) this plays into an interesting theory that floats around. I'm curious to hear your guys' take on this, that the Night King has been a different person throughout history um, and that the Night King or one of the protagonists, John or Bran or someone, could become the Night King. It's hot pie and time is a flat circle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up for yeah. me. <laughs> now I understand. This is the, I'm so glad you're here, Sean, and that you care <laughs> so deeply about this stuff. This is exactly what I, it's just, this is what I think about. I want to understand why they're doing this. What are the White Walkers moving south for? Is it only for murder? And what does it mean that they perpetuate or mock or utilize? I'm not sure, but they were created by someone. We saw that happen. And then now there's a whole lot of them and they're alive, sort of, and they're doing stuff. So I want to mm-hmm. get that. And I know that we're going to get that answer. There's no way that we're not going to figure that out by the end of uh Season eight. So I'm really excited and it feels like we're getting a lot closer. And that's why I'm so on it because I feel like we're getting so close to it. The next episode is called East Watch for God's sakes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, what <are> just <laughs> these episodes definitely feel like the end of the series. I think I kind of expected it to feel this way during the final, I, I don't know, last handful of episodes, maybe. I guess that's kind of an old thought now that we know that. Season eight is basically going to be six movies, and it's kind of looking like season seven. We're already sort of getting that. Yeah, these are all uh, it, like even this episode, which was shorter than normal. I tell you that I, I told Aziz when we were about to do our podcast that I was like, this might be the, the shortest episode of the season, but I think it might be our longest video of the season. And we went for three hours talking about this and <laughs> mm-hmm. like two hours and 40 minutes. We both we, we hadn't even realized how long we had been going. There was so much in this. Thinking about the the Night King and the beard, it definitely, you know, maybe it's as simple as he shaved his beard. That seems kind of an odd thing for these surreal, fantastic creatures to shave. But I guess some of them have beards and some (laughs) don't. I guess they, yeah, did they just, were they created with beards in the first place or did they grow them over time? I wonder if some would make fun of the others because they can't grow beards, you know, like, and I'm kind of joking there, but I also kind of wonder. Are there factions within the White Walkers? Do they all have the same goal? Whatever their goals are, say the Night King wants to go south and stop dragons or kill all humans or whatever. Do all of them want that? Is there dissent in the ranks? 
could they split their forces and some go to Eastwatch and some go to the main gates? There's so there's so much mystery around these characters, and and I partly appreciate that mystery. It's part of what makes them so menacing. Is mm-hmm. we just don't know. <laughs> yeah, because I definitely think that we can, because this is George R. R. Martin's world, dismiss this idea that they're just zombie, ice, brainless, mindlessly marching or mindlessly killing as they walk a certain direction you know like we we know too much about their the way that they're created to be able to kind of dismiss them as just being the bad guys we truly learned that in hard home at the end of season two they were marching but they still looked pretty crude compared to the four horsemen standing over the ridge peering upon their attack Mm -hmm. and that crazy music and you know they obviously snuck up on them the look that he gave to John when the canoe was going out in the water and Gendry was rowing them away. Wait, we, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, hasn't it been the same for the dragons though? Cruder, smaller, I guess less intelligent to us form. And like we said earlier, now they're making their debut, their hard home episode. That was one of the dragons. And if there was 18, like some of the stuff that you can read about in the histories of Westeros. So I wonder if you can make it, maybe make a parallel between the Targaryens and their dragons and the White Walkers and their whites. Does that make sense? Like their horde of monsters, mm. they might be mindless and destructive, but the leaders aren't necessarily, and they maybe you could politic with. Maybe they have some idea of the value of life or agreements or et cetera, et cetera. I you think know? you're on the right track though, because the White Walkers, if their death if fire is, is, is more energy and alive and ice is colder and more still then they would have the characteristics of of a zombie-ish white walker and a dragon would be a a wild animal you know that's difficult Mm -hmm. to tame that has the raw power of the earth yeah it was no it was no joke especially i love i've loved so much of of, over the last couple days people have been putting the picture of when drogon was burning that piece of meat for the first time she was just teaching him how to (laughs) what season two how to use his his fire to to now be able to ride on on his back creating this mass destruction something i want to throw out there by the way i think that it's worth noting danny again we pointed out that she's targeting this military force and not civilian targets but also within the military force think about how she used the dragons and the more i think about this the more i believe it was by design i think she only really targeted people one time, maybe a couple times. The first run through when she broke the line with fire so the cavalry could charge through. And then when the archers were firing at her, she swooped around and fired them down. But every other time she was targeting the supply line behind them. They would show these shots of this line of Lannister troops and their shields and spears holding the line. And behind them, this row of wagons and supplies and whatnot and the dragon was flying behind them destroying those supplies i think that that was by design to not just slaughter all the people and also strategic like for the sake of like uh how you're received after the fact right after this battle you're not like this tyrant murderous villain you know you're just a battle commander and additionally for the strategy of the actual battle, they kind of pinned the soldiers in between the Dothraki cavalry and the fire behind them. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really good point. And I, I, I kind of had a similar thought in st- strategically how she controlled 
what was burned where and when. Because I, I definitely mm-hmm. think that, you know, you're, you're rewatching the episode and there were many, many opportunities for her to burn every single person on the ground down there. Yeah. She could have very easily, so but but she didn't. Yeah, a lot of people got incidentally burned because there were, were some soldiers hanging around those those wagons mm-hmm. or whatever. But she wasn't. She could have targeted. She could have all those swoops, all those runs of firing that Drogon did could have all been along rows of people, but well, they weren't. And so there's worked. these questions that some people that have popped up a little bit about whether or not Danny doing this shows a glimpse of her madness and if this means she's following in her father's footsteps and i think that if we look at it this way that that can't be the case because while yes she has dragons she's not using them uncontrollably she's using them yet fairly strategically she's only yet. got one of them out right now yeah yet today's show is sponsored by cameron hughes wine did you know that there are official game of thrones wines made by one of the most famous winemakers in the industry. No joke. The powers that be went all out and spared no expense making incredible wines that look and feel straight out of the Thrones universe. Whether you attend watch parties or whether you're at one of the dozen Con of Thrones parties I saw these wines in, or you just enjoy watching the show by yourself, there's nothing more appropriate to set the mood. These three wines were made by Bob Cabral, a legendary winemaker that Wine Enthusiast magazine named Winemaker of the Year in 2011. He earned the first ever 100-point score from a major publication for a California Pinot Noir. Over his career, he has crafted over 100 wines that were scored in the 95 to 100 range. These bottles are not just a set of gorgeous labels. They are serious wines made by a living legend. Even the biggest wine snobs can't help but agree that these are outstanding to drink. And this is extra cool for us. Listeners of the podcast know that we appreciate when official merchandise in the Game of Thrones universe is up to the same standard of quality as the show. There are three wines, a Chardonnay, a Cabernet, and a Red Blend, all from fantastic vineyards in California. This is where I personally recommend with all enthusiasm, the Red Blend. Again, the labels on these wines are truly stunning. They all feature intricate gold foils featuring great houses of Westeros and looks like they were lifted straight from the intro credits. Now, an exclusive offer for Game of Owns listeners. You can get a free Game of Thrones branded Sommelier Corkscrew. This is a $10 value, absolutely free. This is a no-brainer to get amazing, high-quality wine from a world-renowned winemaker. To get your own amazing Game of Thrones-themed wines, go to GameOfThronesWines.com and enter coupon code WINTER to receive a free Sommelier Corkscrew, a $10 value. Be yours to keep long after you've enjoyed the wines. That's GameOfThronesWines.com and enter coupon code WINTER. Don't wait. Winter is here. Drink up. The next question that we asked, which ties into all of this, is what is next for our heroes who survived the loot train? So we see... Between Jamie, assuming, and Braun and Danny and, and Tyrion, you know, what comes after this battle? What happens next? What do we see? You know, maybe not necessarily next episode, but likely. What do we see with with especially Jamie and Braun is what I'm most curious about. Jamie and Braun are fished out of the water and Danny's not happy. And Tyrion is probably there to to mediate things. That's what I think. Yeah, because we can definitely agree that they're 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 out of the water and they're captive. Like I don't think that there's any way they can get away from 
from this? There will be some short-term thoughts and some long-term thoughts, right? Like what's going to happen immediately on the battlefield? Almost certainly Jamie's not dead. He's going to need some CPR. Right. Get the water out of the lungs. Yeah. I can imagine not, <laughs> not getting a scene of that. I can also imagine it maybe being the opening scene of the next episode. That could be cool. But one way or the other, we're going to lead to more long-term uh, thoughts on this, right? Like the interaction between Jamie and Tyrion. Ron and Tyrion. Ron and Tyrion. Definitely. Danny and Jamie will be a good interaction. Yes. Ron and Davos would be a good interaction. Do you remember when uh when Davos and Tyrion met? They acknowledged that they were on opposite sides of the Blackwater Bay. Davos and Bron were too. Bron's the one that fired that arrow. By the way, yeah. Bron b- multiple times a hero with a missile weapon. I know. Uh, yeah. He <laughs> fired that, arrow, that flaming arrow into the wildfire that killed Davos's son. So uh, not that he'll necessarily hold a grudge, but there may be a conversation that happens there. There is something to reference. There's lots of interactions between these characters to look forward to. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm most looking forward to? And as as I was thinking about these questions, and, and we talked a little bit about on our last episode about Jamie becoming captive and thinking for about- For the third time. For the third time. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jamie. Just like his <laughs> half his storyline is him being captive. And... Uh, he is captive to Cersei all the time. <laughs> <laughs> True as heck. His interactions with Tyrion is something that I'm really looking forward to. And, and I was thinking a lot about Jamie as Danny's hostage and his relationship with Tyrion and thinking about when Jamie released Tyrion um, after Joffrey's death and if Tyrion maybe releases Jamie or, you know, so we mm. had that, we talked earlier about that conversation that Danny has on the beach with her squad. And one of the things that she says to Tyrion, which we touched on as well, is that he, has this love for his family. And so does that mean that he's completely on Danny's side or does he still have some Lannister line in him? And if that could be a foreshadowing to Tyrion and Jaime, Tyrion releasing him or Tyrion pushing things in a direction that his brother doesn't get harmed to the point of death by, but in, in Danny's hand, I don't know, but I just, I think that, I'm really, really excited to see how those interactions play out because I think that that's a really interesting dynamic there. Earlier, when Danny was kind of lashing out against Tyrion, and you said that, you know, I think you said that she didn't she didn't necessarily believe this. Or if, if you didn't say that, I'll say it now. I don't know if she necessarily believed that. It may be a thought that's in the back of her mind, but she was willing to entertain it and maybe some other things that she doesn't really believe at that moment because she's angry. And I think... I think Tyrion is wise enough to recognize that too. He didn't really take that as a personal slight. That he knows that she's just mad at this moment. She's kind of lashing out. She's trying to find answers. And she might say something kind of mean or brash. However, Tyrion really does care about Jaime. And as much as there is maybe some history between Ron and Davos, there is some history between Jaime and Danny. He killed her father. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This may be a chance for her to exact revenge for that. Now, she barely knew her father and she's acknowledged that her father wasn't a great man. So maybe she won't be stuck to that. But she still may be used as, as bargaining power against Jamie, something to lord over him. She'll, she won't she'll be the say only it out one. loud. Like, we'll probably get that line at least. Yeah. Ooh. We know that Bronn will definitely go over to Tyrion's side because they're friends and because he's Bronn, you know? Eh, for yeah, sure. Sure. And, uh, you know, Danny's going to have to. Hopefully, Bronn won't mention that he's the one that was firing the scorpion. 
Maybe she'll know. It's hard to say. If I if I was Danny, I would want the guy who can fire that thing to be on my side. <laughs> There's yeah. that too, honestly. <laughs> Ron should be riding one of those dragons. But Jamie had all those moments during the battle where he was looking around and was like, okay. So even though he saw Cersei do exactly what he killed the Mad King for, he did just see dragons. And I, I don't think he ever saw that. You know what I mean? And so this is... He's, he didn't actually see the stuff with Cersei happen. He saw the aftermath. He felt the death of his son. And so many, I mean, it was devastating. So really, there's no good side for him to choose. So I guess I'm throwing up the scenario. Like, what if? Yeah, how does that the make? The option does that is given make, to him. Right. Does that make Jamie want to be on Danny's side so no. that he's not on the wrong side of this flamethrowing or to end it faster? Or does it want him to be against her to stop it from happening? I you don't know? think we'll ever see Jamie. Betray Cersei. I am all for this. I this theory that Jamie will eventually be the one to kill Cersei or be the end of Cersei. But I just I I think that that's kind of like a last act for him. Like I don't see yeah. him actively teaming up against teaming her up against for a her. series of episodes. Well, then what yeah. does he do here? Like, how does he get out of this situation? Then well, he might just be a prisoner. It might be as yeah. simple as that. I doubt they'll execute him. But I think that he might legitimately just be a prisoner, and that maybe gives Danny some bargaining power with Cersei. Yeah, because I think Cersei is going to do anything she can to get Jamie back. I mean, Jamie's her that, only. Really? Jamie, Jamie's. Who does Cersei have on her side? Kyburn and Jamie. You're right. You know, we still have a lot to talk about here, but this is. I want to jump ahead because what's being talked about here is that maybe the answer to the next question is. Maybe the Golden Company storms Dragonstone. Honestly, Sean, this is in game. This is all the same stuff. Do you realize? How, <laughs> like, you don't realize when we're watching the show this time, it's cutting from like John to Sansa to Jamie and Bron fighting Danny in a field of fire. You know, this this John with <laughs> Danny. I mean, yeah, it's everything's starting to become very intertwined. Except for Melisandre, she went to another continent. What the heck? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to point out one one subtle little moment that I liked is for all the like the big moments that happen in here. There was a scene when Randall Tarley rides up to Jamie and Bronn. And he's like, hey, we got to hurry things up. I think we should start whipping the troops in the back that are going too slow. And as he's saying this, there's this look on Bronn's face like, hey, hold on, man. What the hell? And I think it kind of makes sense because... Braun has been sort of the soldier on the ground. It's kind of new for him to be in this leadership position. He doesn't like the idea of soldiers being mistreated like that. But Randall, when, the, when those dragons came, when that Dothraki horde came and those dragons came, those Lannister troops held their ground. Yeah. Randall may have been the one that instilled that discipline, right? So I think it's it was a, it was a quick moment. It only lasted like five seconds. There's only like three or four lines of dialogue. But we saw a, an, a facet of Randall and Braun's personalities come out. And then Jamie mediating in between. He's like, warn him first. Let him know you're going to do that before you just straight up do it. And that that quick little scene, I think, did a lot to reinforce and establish those characters. And I'm bringing all this up because that's these are more characters we have to think about what's going to happen to after this battle. Randall and Dickon are being presented as more and more central characters, right? We got yeah, they were introduced last season, and now we've seen them become big players and. This other character who we've been tied to from the beginning, Sam, is in their family. So these are just more things we might have to think about. Like, is it possible that Randall is stubborn enough? He's already kind of switched one oath and maybe he doesn't have it in him to switch another. He might get burned like Mance, maybe made an example of. 
maybe not. Maybe he is also just a prisoner to be bargained with with Jamie. Does Dickon, would Dickon stand by his father and go down with him? Or would he, after seeing his father killed, bend the knee to Danny, thereby getting Danny the reach back? I guess the castle's still been taken. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot going on here is what I'm saying. Yeah, though. there really is. She's probably not going to just burn them all in a field. What she would most <laughs> like is for them to all join her side. That may be too optimistic. Somewhere in the middle might be take them prisoner, take them back to Dragonstone as prisoner. But she probably doesn't just throw them in a dungeon and forget about it. She's either going to have some sort of trial or some sort of demand. She, she wants John to bend the knee. She definitely wants Randall to bend the knee. Her, his forces might be at stake in addition to just her private right. ego, right? Right. And uh, he also might be a tool to bargain with Cersei. So we have this comment um, that I think summarizes nicely from Dark Sister who says, Judging by the description for Eastwatch, I'm hoping Danny doesn't do anything rash with the survivors, like burn them. If she wants Westerosis to follow her, I'm hoping she's smart enough to know that she can't be like her father and just kill those who would oppose her. Mm -hmm. When you get deeper into the fandom, I think that the perception of Danny is a little more split. I think the general populace thinks of her as this cool, badass heroine, right? But the people who watch it a little more closely, some of them still think that way, but some of them are suspicious of her, that she's this conqueror, this tyrant, this potentially more villainous than she might be on the surface, right? right? And her burning Randall Tarly might reinforce that, you know, this concern that we have that she is following in her father's footsteps that Ares didn't start off, right? In his youth, he wasn't this madman burning people left and right. He grew into that over time. We might be seeing shades of it here. Danny might have this instinct to act aggressively and want to burn people, but she listens to the people around her and peels back. On the beach. But maybe... Mm. Right, maybe she'll go back and forth with this. There is a line in, in the, the trailer where, uh, is it Varus telling Tyrion, we got to find a way to keep her under control, you know? When I first read the question, what is Kyburn's plan for the Golden Company? My instinct, like my snap reaction in my mind was, what was Kyburn's plan for the mm -hmm. Golden Company? Because circumstances have changed. So whatever his plan was might be different now. Although it's possible that even with changed circumstances, the plan might still be the change. Uh, this, uh, the plan might still be the same. And until I've been talking to, with you guys for this episode, it didn't occur to me what the plan might be is Storm Dragonstone. Mm. Might have been the plan before. might be the plan even more so now. I wonder at what point they would have to come in quickly with Danny and so many of the Dothraki being continental. Hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, where are they going to be? Right. We're assuming the they're even coming, that they're even coming, right? It's possible they end up not coming for a multiple, a multitude well, of we reasons. We got to see it now. Stop it from We got to name yeah, drop yeah. on the show. I got to <laughs> see the, like at least the banners. You can't toy with us like that. So we got this comment from Alba Stark that I thought was really interesting. Who and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but they talk about how they say, "I would guess at some point or another they've had experience fighting." the Dothraki and or Unsullied. Definitely. Which is a really great point that I just wasn't thinking about that more so than anybody else, they've likely come face to face with these guys on lots of different occasions. And so that's, if no other reason than to kind of give Cersei and team some intel on Ooh. how best to yeah. handle these types of, of battles. H Hannah, Travis Cole's comment. I know. And, and, and Sean, just... I think Kyburn may actually have the Golden Company attack Daenerys uh, 
Attack Daenerys' other strongholds in Essos. Marine, Young Kai asks for if Danny finds out her freed slaves have been re-enslaved or Dario has been killed, she could be mm. affected heavily mentally and emotionally. Yes, I think Whoa. yeah, Travis's comment I thought was really, really interesting because this to me is a decently plausible. I was thinking that the Golden Company maybe could get Casterly Rock back, especially when you guys just now said that they have experience against the uh against the unsullied yeah but thinking about this my 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 first instinct is like nah i don't think so i think the focus is on westeros i don't think we're going back over to essos but as soon as i had that thought i remembered wait a minute melisandre's went back over to mm-hmm. essos right that maybe they are trying to tie that tie that back in that and that would be another way to kind of i don't say this but stretch out plot points through another season yeah i don't know it's interesting the golden company is something that we has only ever been mentioned once or twice before in the show before this. And so it's definitely, I mean, we can dive into book theories, which we won't do because Sean's here. and I don't want (laughs) to spoil more things for you as I already have. You might as well now. (laughs) Well, Sean, (laughs) when a Targaryen and a Stark love each other very much. (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) this is fun at one point i I think this is different from the books but at one point in the show jorah says that he spent time with the golden company Mm. which is another way to maybe reinforce the idea that they will bring them back one way or the other you know i thought the show was supposed to be getting more narrow think again (laughs) some people are saying gendry could be with the golden company Ooh, yes yes i also i mean and again Sean, we can't get into this with you. I'm sorry, but I have to say it. <laughs> There's some of these conversations that talk of the Golden Company means that we're going to get this fake again, a Dance with Dragons plot a little bit, which I just, I don't think is going to happen. I don't think, I think it's a, a much smaller thing than that, personally. You know, I don't think it's crazy for Gendry to be brought back in and for that be a way to do it. Uh, especially, again, thinking about Melisandre going back over there. She knows who Gendry is. And I don't know how much we want to account for this in our analysis, but Gen- the actor that plays Gendry was at the premiere of the the first episode of this season, which, you know, maybe he's just a guest there. Maybe everyone's invited, but maybe he's there <laughs> because he's going to be in it at some point. Well, we'll definitely know before the episode actually airs because there will be footage of him and the pre-episode footage. For sure. Oh, yeah. On yeah. one hand, putting it in there That's will true. get people super excited about the episode. But on the other hand, not putting it in there will get people super excited during the episode. I think that people would maybe forget who he was. I don't not know. Us. <laughs> yeah, not us. Yeah, not some people. Not anybody. I'll a bull helmet. Say a lot of people, but man, the people who w- do remember will be so pumped. <laughs> All right, everybody. Here's your bonus question. What does the arrival of Arya mean to Peter Baelish? Badness. <laughs> More chaos. <laughs> what is chaos? <laughs> I think as I think Arya's arrival might have less meaning to Peter than it does to other people, and Arya's arrival. I'm gonna try to might have less meaning to people than other people's arrival. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. I think Bran appearing is more important to Peter than Arya. Yeah. And I think Arya appearing is more important to Sansa than it is to Peter. So the question mm-hmm. wasn't sense? very good is what you're saying, right? <laughs> well, it is still an interesting <laughs> is it question. Is a leading question? Probably because it brings up all these other questions. <laughs> well, we get this idea of, you know, regardless of if Arya specifically has anything to do with Littlefinger, this circling of the wolves and that he's continually becoming outnumbered and brand very obviously is the one who as we see with chaos as a ladder is going to out little finger 
in whatever way and whatever that means and to whoever that is in some way or another just because he's got this wealth you know my of information. Theory? I would love to hear your theory. I don't think he is going to. You don't? For two reasons. Okay. No. Reason one, I don't think he cares. It just isn't <laughs> meaningful to him. Fair. You know what I mean? It To brand, it would be. But he's just not brand anymore. He's the three-eyed raven. And this is just in the same way if, if we like as an audience kind of take a step back and think about this this maneuvering and bickering that Cersei and different characters have had for the throne. And we're like, look, you don't understand the zombies are coming. You know, like John kind of understands the real threat that's going on. Bran understands the real threat that's going on. So this is like John small potatoes also, for him. Right. John will also care about Baelish being responsible for his dad's death because that is personal to him. But at this point, it's not personal to Bran slash the Three-Eyed Raven anymore. It's 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 just irrelevant in the, the happenings of all that's going on. He cares as much about that as he does that that Cersei killed uh, the Sparrow or that Arya killed the phrase. It's like a thing he knows and it, maybe it's interesting, but it's not what he's concerned about. You don't think there's enough Bran left in him to care about his father's I think it would be a neat death. emotional moment for that to happen, for Bran, for little bits of Bran to, to come to the surface, and maybe it will. But even if it did, let me tell you, this is part two of my theory why he's not going to add him. He needs him. Littlefinger and his forces are part of the battle against the Night King. And if he brings this out and Littlefinger like runs away or withdraws his forces or starts some kind of civil war, like Bran, do you see what I'm saying? Like, even if he knew and maybe thought it was important or wanted to tell, maybe he can't tell because he knows that Littlefinger is actually needed. In the same way that Sansa knows that Littlefinger killed Lysa Aaron. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And she's not going around telling about Littlefinger killed Lysa Aaron. You guys know that? Did you know Littlefinger killed Lysa Aaron? He's really a bad guy. She's keeping that to herself. She's keeping it to herself because she knows he needs they need her his forces. Hmm. I still think Littlefinger might get outed otherwise, but I just don't think that Bran is going to do it. Bran does know the answer to everything. And so <laughs> these little beats that he's seeing, like for example, his eyes bugged out a little bit. I think is like the most excitement I've seen him have so far since he's been to Winterfell when Arya took the dagger from his hand. I thought I thought I saw a little motion when he kind of like stuck it to Littlefinger, if you will, when he when he said the yeah, line. That that's that that the look between them is stone face and Bran was. There still was a direction. little bit of like, huh, about that. Yeah, you know, you're right how about, about that. them apples? <laughs> Those are, I feel like it was a little, almost completion completionism in his head a little bit. Like and that might be reaching, but I've seen people talking about how Arya is going to be the one to take down the Night King with that dagger. I don't know if it's just because it's Arya or if it's just because it's a Valyrian steel dagger or if it has more to do with the history and the symbolism that that sort of payoff would, would have in relation to Arya as a character and also specifically uh, the dagger itself. But um, he definitely seemed like he was giving that to her for a reason. He was doing it casually, but I, I don't know. I didn't buy it. I think that uh, here, here's another theory. Arya's gonna die. Well, Maybe not soon. Die. She might even kill the um, Night King with her with her what? dagger or whatever. But I think she's a character that puts herself in harm's way a lot. And it also, what is the future for her character? Otherwise, she's gonna like get married and have three kids, live happily ever after. You know, what Arya's arc is to get into action, and with the action that's coming, anyone getting into it is likely to die. Well, you don't think this is gonna have a happy, a straight happy ending, right? Do you think at the end of this, all the Stark kids? Are alive and happy. You know what I mean? Like, there's going to be some tragedy mixed up with the ending of this show. Well, uh, 
he, she just got home. Like, can we just like give it a few minutes? I still think you're doing amazing, sweetie. You go, Aria. Sean, before we get into listener owns, can we get your own of the whole episode? Now that we've kind of run through so many of the detail, what would you say your overall own of the whole episode would be? Can I, I, I tweeted an own. I don't know if you saw it, but my own was to you guys and your followers for all the owns that fill my Twitter feed. Aww. That's really sweet. I don't know if that's a cheat or not, but that's my legit own. No, that's not a cheat. That's, that's our favorite part too. All right, all right. Uh, beyond that, I, I no no I no that was your a... own. You said that was <laughs> okay. I, I can accept. No. Again. You guys well, heard. Take ten if you give me ten. No no please give us tell us please. <laughs> I think it was at that moment between uh between Brandon Littlefinger you oh. know, when he says the chaos line. I also want to point out something real quick on that that <laughs> I think it might be a bit of a leap. I, I think the general reaction to everyone watching was like, "Well, Littlefinger knows that Bran knows." Like that might be a leap to assume what. Little the way Littlefinger interprets that. I don't think anyone told Littlefinger, oh yeah, Bran has visions and he can see the past and anything now. I don't know if Littlefinger necessarily knows that. He might have, there, like there's, I don't know if this is likely, I don't know if that's where they're going with it, but on some level he might, uh, not just what Littlefinger thinks, but it might be true. Bran and him are on the same wavelength of like that, that little speech he gave Sansa is like play out all the possibilities, mm-hmm. see everything at once, think about what's going, look at the big picture, you know, he might have felt some connection to Bran, real even if it was a real. little bit of a threat. You know, I also want to give an own to that moment. I, I got to tell you, I had a little emotion well up in me when Bran and Arya were fighting and they kind of had blades at each other's throats and gave each other a little bit of a smile. I, I legit kind of welled up with some emotion at that moment. I would give that an own too. That was really well put together. And for since we're all giving extra points here at the end, <laughs> I'm just gonna say You're gonna re give your own? No. Maybe. No, I'm <laughs> okay. not this is not I just wanna Well give it just so I know what it was. What was your own? My own was brawn, I think. Okay. But if if it wasn't, then I'm gonna change it to brawn. Sean, you could just <laughs> listen to our podcast. <laughs> just kidding. Brandon I and Aria, do that. man, that was just I watched it again not too long ago before we recorded, and I just, I feel exactly the same. It was so good to watch. And I felt like Arya was just like having a blast, like when they made that face to each other. Brienne was having a blast too. She was, man. They were, <laughs> and that was, and Sansa was watching. It was just, it was, you know, I wish Brand could have been out there hanging out with them. And I think it's even more funny that they were able to just be totally awkward to Littlefinger on purpose and love every minute of it. <laughs> Here I stand in a world that's not my own. Hey, not this is Suze from the band Daenerys and the Targaryens wishing you a happy Game of Bones. Last week, Drogon burned shit down with one word, Drake Hobbs. So don't be a dick on. And maybe it's time to bend the knee, Jamie. Our first own comes from Ian McDerry's who says, Braun for sure, giving up the gold and hitting a dragon mid-flight. And saving Jamie at the end, he's the hero we need, not the one we deserve. <laughs> Damn right. Travis Cole, my own goes to Braun for not being content with his payment, schooling Rickon, I mean Dickon, <laughs> actually injuring Drogon, and saving Jamie's dumb ass. <laughs> hashtag University of Sir Braun of the Blackwater. Heck yeah. Lou I like that Jim. hashtag. Own to Danny for her innocence and not knowing what it really means to ask John to bend a knee in a cave. Hashtag next time <laughs> ask him to bend both. 
Tongue face, Lou. <laughs> Gil Pound says, own to Ned's likeness in the crypts. It can't speak, but we all know what it was thinking. Hashtag, you're doing amazing, sweeties. <laughs> Ronald Keith Holmes, Sarda Sansa fans. Owned to Sansa, who got owned when she realized she's the least badass of the Starks. Yeah. You know, Ronald I'm a Sansa is so fan, so lucky that is. Ronald is so lucky that his own made it in. Justine Henry, owned to John for 100% drawing those cave markings himself to convince Danny. Hashtag, yeah, sure, the first men and the children of the forest were French. Hashtag, anti White Walker bros. Hashtag, Michelangelo Snow. <laughs> <laughs> Rochelle Williams, my own goes to Davos for continuing to keep the message of Stannis the Manus alive. Yes. You correct that grammar, Davos. Hashtag fewer. <laughs> Anna Moriel. My own goes to Arya for finally confirming that Cyril Farrell is a faceless man. Hashtag who taught you how to fight? Hashtag no one. Tony Ferry. My own goes to Braun. Not for his hiccup level accuracy in shooting down dragons. Not for potentially saving Jamie's life. Who is that? But for being completely immature and laughing like crazy when Jamie introduced him to Dickon. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany Yarrington. Brienne the Beauty finally getting the dancing partner she's always deserved. Abby Elisa. Owned to Danny for opening a new franchise for a call mm. restaurants in the Reach. <laughs> Special of the day, smoked leg of Lannister with a side of charred Charlie. Blue Hashtag, apron. get them while they're hot. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag, tastes like chicken. Hashtag, turns to ashes in your mouth. Hashtag, Jakaris. Hashtag, weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> Hashtag, wicked massive dragon. <laughs> Abby. Emily's story, my own is to Drogon for nearly burning Jamie to a crisp. I'm getting the short ones. This is awesome. And saving Danny. <laughs> all after being shot by Kyburn's colossal killer crossbow. All cues. <laughs> all cues. Hashtag, you're doing amazing, sweetie. Johnny Gon's own goes to Brand for changing his Facebook status from it's complicated to single. Hashtag <laughs> buy Mira. Yikes. Hey, Jake Calder. Brand without a doubt casts the ladder. Insert all air horn sound effects in existence. That's really funny. Can you insert air horns in post? Yes. Yeah, I can, but he wants us. He he gave us a direction for post. It's an asterisk. It's a, it's a direction, and it says insert insert all the air horn sound effects in existence. <laughs> Does can he you mean do like that? all the can different kinds or every everyone... air horn blowing at the same time? <laughs> oh my god, Jake. Start gathering up the air horns. Fantastic going from Mitchell on Facebook. Hashtag give Braun Casterly Ruck. <laughs> Chad Carter on Twitter says my own goes to Mira Reed. The <laughs> oh god. The mother of dragons. <laughs> like with two G's. D-R-A-G-G-I-N-S. She deserved more than that goodbye from Bran. She did. That was dark. Lauren DeWitt on Twitter at Game of Thrones owned to King Robert for being right AF about Dothraki skills. Only a fool would meet the Dothraki in an open field. Hashtag one real army. Law Mali owned Amira for her response to the new wheelchair after dragging his ass around. Oh, that's nice. Hashtag <laughs> you died in that cave. Hashtag Brand. David Macrelli owned to Stance Baratheon, the one true king of grammar. His lessons live on in his nub-fingered hand. Hashtag fewer forever. Fewer forever. <laughs> Texas forever. Bruno on Twitter says, own to next week's episode because we'll have 10 more minutes. Hashtag Peter Jackson in GOT2K17. Hashtag season finale, a trilogy of three-hour movies. Good. <laughs> Mikey Mann, own to Drogon and Danny for their rendition of the Dance of Dragons. Infinity standing ovation. Hashtag ghost kills a White Walker. 2017. 
Haley Jarrett says my own goes to John proving once again in a cave, Jon Snow knows something. Hashtag king in the caves. Blue Winter Rose, own to the ladies who survived by owning their strengths and doing it their way. Hashtag Arya Brand 2K17. Hashtag Needle was Jon Snow's oh, smile. My fave. Amy B, my own goes to the loan officers of the Iron Bank. Looks like Cersei's interest rates just went up. Hashtag credit karma's a bitch. Next on Twitter, we have Azad who says, my own goes to impatient downloaders who owned themselves by watching a low res <laughs> version of that battle. Josh Williams, owned Speaking to brand. The truth. I mean, Ari was awesome, but he sees all and I have secrets. I can't afford to piss off the three-eyed raven. <laughs> <laughs> Implode optical. Own goes to terrifying Dothraki war screams. Hashtag insane in the brain. Hashtag Tarly BBQ. Hashtag hunt or be hunted. Gary Manis says, own to Braun for padding his already impressive battle resume with a dragon. And Jamie Takedown, hashtag Dragon Slayer-ish, hashtag King Slayer Saver. Sir Braun of the Loot Train. Doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> Jesse Leonard says, Own goes to Sansa and Arya for both wishing they'd killed Joffrey. Hashtag spoils a war. Hashtag is that poison nanny? Ginny Girl on Twitter, my own goes to John for taking Danny on their first date. Romantic setting, candlelight, and art. Kissy emoji with the heart between them. Kissy emoji or uh, or just emoji with the heart between them. Snowflake fire hashtag you know something, John Snow. Tara Doland on Twitter says own to hashtag vacation Davos. <laughs> for enjoying the climate and making moves on every lady. Hashtag if you like pina coladas. Vacation Davos is my new summer vibe. Do they have a pool at Dragonstone? Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hope so. It's a hot spring. You'll love it. Own to the Starks for always hanging out with their dead relatives before literally anyone else. Hashtag Stark Family Reunion 2K17. Jay Breezy, own to that incredible steep drop off into the lake that we're led to believe Jamie drowns in. Hashtag thought it was a puddle. Chris Marshburn owns to the director for making everything we've been waiting six years for to suddenly all come together in 50 minutes. Vacation Davos. Nathan Hambly. Own to Bran for making Littlefinger realize that maybe the Starks are less like the Brady Bunch and more like the X-Men. Close the door podcast. Own to Davos for moving on Grey Worm's girl while he's out of town. <laughs> James Carson says, Own to Fancy Lad School for sparing Dick on the smelly details of battle. Hashtag Professor Braun. The last, the greatest. We did save the best for last. Own for this episode comes from Matt Lucas who says, Drumroll please. My own goes to my parents for having me so I could be alive to see that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, what are you drinking right now? Just a Coke, just a Coca-Cola. Just a Coca-Cola? Yeah, yeah. Nothing fancy. If you all are History of Westeros viewers, listeners, subscribers, you'll know that Sean of House Beard is known for his beverage decisions on his podcast and i just thought it was important to tell you all this at the end of the show now that we've gotten this far zach you fed me some new uh, material to mix what's the name of that site no i really I had don't. a lot of fun mixing together tea flavors i thought you were gonna say that you he fed you literally and it i was not surprised <laughs> well i think he did do that too i'm pretty sure he put a piece of cheese straight into my mouth at one point. i did but you also <laughs> fed me you also fed me remember the soup and the cracker that's right, that's uh, right. honestly i've thought about that every day since it happened (laughs) thank you for coming on game of owns man thanks for having me it was really fun i really enjoyed it as we said at the beginning there are so many things to talk about in this episode and i wouldn't have wanted to dive in deep into white walker lore with anybody 
other than you. So, <laughs> he was literally texting me. I, I love Sean it. like four times while we've been recording. <laughs> yeah. That's not a lie. Only four? Jeez. <laughs> Only four. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who wrote and owns. Uh, again, this uh, we've been saying it week over week, and we've been saying this part week over week, but the episodes are getting progressively hotter, and so are your tweets. I've seen some of the the hottest 2K17 takes of 2K17 so far. So thank you very much for that. If you have yet to send in one of your owns or if you want to participate with us, you can do so in a number of different ways. You can find us on Twitter at Game of Owns or on Facebook by looking for Game of Owns or by sending us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. Sean, do you want to plug your uh, haiku Twitter? Yeah, um, I'm kind of new on Twitter, and uh, I've had a lot of fun making haikus, among other things, including tweeting the episodes and and following everyone else following it, too. But uh, I'm Dancing Sean on Twitter, so follow me there. Or you can check out the uh, hashtag game. Yep, hashtag game or hashtag (laughs) GOT haiku. That might be you can't a better go wrong one to with check other out. hashtags. <laughs> Honestly, Sean's uh he's new to social media, but he's one of the best ones at it. So if you're interested in really good stuff like Game of Thrones, I'd suggest Dancing Sean. They're on the same spectrum of goodness. Check it out. And I'll tell you that anyone out there who maybe has just listened to you guys' podcast, in the past I was just doing our podcast, History of Westeros. But this past year, I kind of opened up and decided to join a community, get on Twitter and watch some other podcasts. And man, it's been so great. I've met so many more people and got so much more insight and had so much more fun, you know, sharing my insights. And I, I encourage everyone else to kind of branch out and, and feel out the rest of the the, Definitely. The, me- the world of media and the Game of Thrones community. And go, go to a con. It, it, there's lots of cool people you meet there and cool events that happen there. Couldn't agree more. And I know Aziz and Ashea. Are somewhere nearby they're keeping quiet they're keeping quiet but they won't be for long you need to listen to history of westeros if you listen to our podcast and you enjoy deep dives and if you enjoy sean's voice thanks so much for for coming and hanging out with us thank you for having me you just stay up with us for the rest of the night it is two o'clock in the morning again you know man <laughs> for the love of the game i legit did not realize how late it had gone i guess it makes sense we're back at it again this sunday night for an episode called east watch a brand new episode everything's okay i'm so excited we're fine just reading the name of that episode just finding out the name of that episode was exciting it evokes all these thoughts and emotions goodbye goodbye Bye.